You know, I was thinking the other day, when am I going to see my people again? Like physically? So many of us are feeling isolated, relying on Zoom or FaceTime to see our friends and family. And we don't really know how long it will be like this. But for many people, this separation is not a new reality. Hola, papi. Hola, mija. ¿Cómo estás? Bien, ¿y tú? That's Isa Mendoza on the phone with her dad, Arnaldo. Isa lives in California, and her father lives in Mexico. He was deported there 11 years ago. And since then, they've watched each other grow older through a screen. And occasionally, they see each other during the holidays. But they really don't know if he'll ever be able to return to the United States. I'm Tanya Mosley. Dear Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told. I need your help. Issa has been living apart from her father for so long, it's just become a normal way of life. But recently, she's been feeling all sorts of emotions about it. Hey, Truth Be Told. My name is Isabet Mendoza, and my question is, how do I start to heal after a family member has been deported? Hey, Isa, how are you? Hey, Tanya. I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. So for folks out there, Isa is our engagement producer, and she's joined us for season two. And before we talk to our wise one, we wanted to tell you a little bit more about her. I want to ask you, Isa, why did you want to open up and tell us your question this week? Um, I've always loved the show, and I loved the fact that people can ask honest questions and get honest responses. And I think I was grappling with something that I hadn't yet asked out loud, and I felt that this was the space and the time to do it. I felt more ready than I have been in the past. And I think that's also like I needed that time. And so you're from East LA and uh, you were born and raised there with your mom, your dad, and your older brothers. You're the only girl in your family. And when you were a junior in high school, um, something happened. Yeah, when I was a junior, my dad was deported. I was 16 years old. And I think we have different definitions of what being a father meant. And so mm. for him, it was being a provider and working a lot. And for me, that meant more of um, being present in our lives. And so I felt he wasn't as present growing up, even up until I was 16. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about what 16 is like. It's a mess. It is. A mess. 16 is a mess. Were you a mess? <laughs> oh, Yeah. I was. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's really interesting. You saying you had your ideas of what a father should be, and he had an idea of what he thought his role should be. And those were kind of different. So he wasn't always around uh, when you were growing up. Yeah. For him, the priority was to make sure that nothing was missing from our lives, that we had food, that we had the clothes that we needed, that we had an income that would allow us to play sports at school or be involved with our friends. I don't think we understood the sacrifice that took. Issa's father was arrested for driving while intoxicated, and this arrest began the process of deportation. Issa had been upset about his drinking, so she wasn't talking to him during this time. That soon changed. He was in a jail in Los Angeles. At that point, I was just like, you know, all of the past and whatever I've had with him, like, this is so much bigger than that. Like, our lives are going to change. Like, this is this is a moment. And when I went, I felt like, I don't know, we just had to acknowledge what situation we were in. So I just asked him, like, how are you feeling? How are they treating you? 
And then I asked him what the legal proceedings were or like what they told him. And I remember him saying that um, he wouldn't be able to return until he's 87, something around 80s. Um, he wouldn't be able to come back to the United States until yeah. he was 80 plus years old. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How did how did you process that? I think that felt very surreal. Like understanding what led up to it just didn't make any sense. Whenever I would visit or talk to him, I would ask him more details about his process. Hmm. And I think early on, I understood what literally happened. I explained to my family that this situation is getting a little bit more complicated because he voluntarily signed to leave. And that's something that a lot of people get pressured into doing because they kind of bully you or tell you, like, do you really want your family to come in here and see you? Are you really going to force your family to, like, endure this? And so he didn't tell anybody that he voluntarily signed. After Issa's father was deported, he settled in Tecate, a city in Baja, California, Mexico. He's not from that area. He only has one family member there. So he's lived alone there for the last 11 years. His time there made him, I think, be a lot more honest with himself. It was kind of like, it's it's definitely not the same, but the closest thing I can compare it to is like solitary confinement. You're by yourself in a very small housing situation. You don't have any friends or family at all where you live. You're waiting for your family to visit you once a year, if that. Um, And so I think he was forced to deal with his demons and his own past and his thoughts um, that have allowed him to be a lot more vulnerable and honest in our conversations and own, own up to a lot of stuff that he has done as a father and as a man. You're going to go talk to your dad. Um, And and what are the things you want to talk to him about? Hmm. Yeah, so I, so we we haven't like as a family acknowledged this. And when you say this, what do you mean? I think like this situation that we're in, even saying, like, it's really easy for me to say to somebody else, my dad was deported. But in our house, we don't say that. Like, we just don't talk about it. And so I think we've all done our best in coping with the situation and getting through the day-to-day. And so I think now I'm starting to catch my dad say some things about his future or about his situation and accepting, you know, the life that he has now. And we as a family haven't done that. And I myself haven't done that. And so I think some of the things that I I want to take this opportunity to to kind of just ask him how he feels about it, which is like such a basic question, but I think I've never asked him, how do you feel? So you're going to give your dad a call, and this is going to be an important call because you're going to try to start this conversation that you're talking about. Yeah. We're going to do it.
We'll hear from Issa and her dad later in the show, that conversation she's been wanting to have for so long. But right now, we're going to talk to a wise one who's made it her mission to help Latinx men and women heal from their trauma. Joining us to take on Issa's question is Adriana Alejandre, a marriage and family therapist based in Los Angeles and founder of Latinx Therapy. It's a bilingual podcast and directory, and the goal of the directory and the podcast is really to break the stigma of mental health in the Latinx community. Adriana, welcome. Thank you so much. You know, I'm thinking a bit about the immigrant experience, and healing is often not a part of the immigrant conversation. Uh, Instead, we're often hearing about and seeing themes about struggle and resilience and survival. Why do you think that is? That's a great question. I think with the undocumented population, those are some of their pillars that help them to keep going, um, to survive, you know, their day-to-day lives hour by hour lives sometimes because of the lack of resources. I think healing is sometimes understandably so one of the last things that they have to think about because most immigrant communities come from a collectivistic culture and they're taught to prioritize others versus themselves. So Mm -hmm. they don't get to think about themselves first. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come very natural. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's one of the reasons why healing gets put on the back burner. This really leads into our question from uh, our engagement producer, Isa. Her dad was deported when she was a junior in high school. And at home, she says, uh, life shifted drastically, but they never really talked about why. This set the norm on how uh, little she actually talks about it until now. Let's listen. You know, I realized in making this episode that I had never said that I miss my dad in all of those 11 years. It was kind of those things that if I said it, it didn't make things easier. And it felt a little bit pointless in saying it. It's realizations like this that made me look at the past as something that I need to go back and revisit and heal from in order to have a different future. And if I want the future to feel different for me and for my family, then I need to take a first step with myself. I just don't know what that first step looks like. Adriana, I I first just want to commend and acknowledge Issa for being so open. I really commend her for taking that moment and really being introspective because it's not easy. It's not. And I want to thank her, too, for being vulnerable, because I think when it comes to opening up about something like this, it isn't just individual healing that's about to happen. It's also community healing because she's part of a system. She's part of a unit back home. So this is just the start of it. Yeah. You know, I hear one thing that uh, you actually said earlier about immigrant communities in particular, individuals so focused on the collective and everyone else and not necessarily themselves. And so for so long, it sounds like Isa has been thinking about her father's well-being back in Mexico, her mother, her brothers, even her grandmother, but she's not thought about herself in this equation. How does she begin to do that? The first thing that I would want to ask Isa is, if she's ready and willing to continue opening up and what ways does that look like for Isa? Most commonly, there's therapy, right? But not everybody mm-hmm. in this position is, is ready to um, enter therapy and that's okay. 
um, just knowing that that's an option and knowing what resources there are for therapy is important for when they are ready, whether it's through individual therapy or support group style therapy. Uh, there's also self-help books. There's research that she could do on her own, like through podcasts and just trying to understand her own feelings um, mm -hmm. and uh, just talking about it a little bit more with friends that can relate to what she's going through. Yeah. What about her family? You know, uh, she said they've never talked about it, but I think she's ready. She's ready to like have that conversation with her mother and her brothers and her father. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really going to depend on her current relationship with her family, because sometimes we might feel ready to speak with our families about a difficult topic, but just because we're ready, it doesn't mean that the family is ready or some members are ready. Mm -hmm. And that could be a very invalidating and traumatizing experience. So I would say to take it member by, by member and start mm -hmm. with whoever she's closest with first and just see what kind of reaction she gets because it could be very overwhelming having like you know a family meeting or bringing it up during dinner yeah. and it could just be right, shocking right. to people yeah i mean that makes so much sense to take it member by member because you kind of know what family members yeah. are in the space or at that level where they can actually have that kind of conversation or be open to it one thing though that i got from isa there's pain uh but there's also anger you know, anger at the situation. And it's not put together in a box in a mm -hmm. nice bow, uh, what has happened to her family. The part of the backstory where her father was always working before he was deported. So he wasn't really a part of the family in the way that um, society tells us fathers should be in our homes. And so she was kind of grappling with her relationship with her father before he mm -hmm. was deported. So there's sort of an anger for the loss of all of that, but then an anger in being in this place. Can you talk a little bit about anger? Because sometimes we feel guilty for feeling anger, but I personally believe that that at some point we have to acknowledge it. You know what I mean? And say it's okay. Yeah. You're the expert though. What do you think? Uh, yeah. You know, I've I've evolved so much with the therapeutic philosophy of anger and I, I went to school here at Pepperdine University for my graduate school training, and I have come to learn and come to terms that I was taught in a very westernized way. And in this mm. westernized way, we are taught that anger is a secondary emotion. Mm. But through my clients, my clients of color specifically, I've learned that that's not true. Oh. Anger is valid. Yeah. Anger has a place and we need to listen to our anger and we need to learn how to express our anger in healthier ways. So that's oh. the that's the thing about anger is yeah. that if we don't let it out, it's going to boil inside and it's going to hurt your health. It's going to hurt your mental health. It's just going to hurt physically, honestly. Mm. Anger hurts. But if we can learn to expel it and release it in healthy ways when we're aware of it, then that becomes healthier and it translates into another emotion eventually once you come mm. once you start processing it wow that's so powerful cuz you're right i mean in western society we are taught that anger is a secondary emotion and that ultimately it all comes down to fear is what we've been taught right 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 i think it holds yeah. hands with fear with pain with confusion but it has a place and we need to stop invalidating our own anger 
Adriana, you know, there is a unique lived experience for children of immigrants or first-gen Americans. Um, How is this exacerbated by family separation? In so many ways, because there could be a lot of feelings of either abandonment or new abandonment, right? Whether it's recent or old, um, many different triggers. The system changes when someone is is taken out of the unit. Um, they are not the same anyone anymore, and they have to adjust to a new rhythm, a new routine. You know how to survive without that person and that person probably had already contributed to the unit so much in some way and was keeping everybody balanced to some degree. So rebalancing everybody else without that individual is difficult on a financial level, on an emotional level. The body goes through changes as well when someone that we love is taken from our unit. And when we're talking about immigrant rights, we often hold up a certain type of immigrant, an exceptional immigrant, or we're talking about folks who have been deported. Oftentimes the narratives are about a family unit that's broken up and this family unit kind of is the is held as like the perfect American family. But Issa's family did not necessarily uh, have those same markers. And so there's sort of anger in that, in that we're having this discussion, but we're not really acknowledging all of the other people that have been broken up from their families, but don't hold those same exceptional qualities. Yeah, that's really difficult, you know, on a family unit overall, because if your family has been more low key, there could be a lot of just like confusion, shame, anger. Um, frustration towards the system not validating your experience and not knowing also how to address the community if you even want to address the community, including other family members in talking to them as to why this is um, this is very difficult for the family. So as Issa goes through this journey, as she thinks about her own healing and perhaps even the healing of her family and family members, um, What is the overarching advice that you'd give to her? Issa, as you go through this journey and move forward bit by bit, I I encourage you to reach out for help and know that you're not alone. If family members are not willing to talk about this, there's a community waiting for you that's willing to hold your hand through this. You're truly not alone. Ask for help, though, because I know that we're taught to be independent, to be resilient, to blossom on our own, but um, it doesn't always have to be that way. There could also be a point in Issa's journey where she says, I'm not ready to take this all the way through. This is too much for me. And, and I'm thinking that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Pausing the healing journey is very essential. And I also see it in my practice with a lot of different clients huge progress when someone can vocalize and communicate with someone that they need to pause. That's very difficult to say and recognize because a lot of shame can come from it. But it's normal. It's okay to pause and important to listen to your own instincts and your own self if something within you is saying you've you've reached a cap, an emotional cap. Um, just take a moment for yourself and digest this whole journey that you've been through. It's something that I have even done personally a couple times. 
Um, and a lot more so, you know, as this whole social media boom has been going on where people talk about mental health every single day, it just gets too much sometimes. And so it's okay to pause these mm -hmm. elements. The only red flag I'll say is to just be aware of your avoiding tendencies. Mm -hmm. I personally also mm -hmm. tend to avoid sometimes and I know that's gotten in the way of my healing. Like sometimes I, I can feel my body feels when I've gone a little bit too far out into mm. just taking that pause. It's not a pause anymore. It's avoidance. Mm. Adriana, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Adriana is so right. This journey Issa is on has no timetable. And it actually might feel worse before it feels better. But sometimes you just need someone to say, yep, I know what you're going through and every emotion you feel is okay. Okay, remember Issa mentioning her plans to call her dad to talk about all of this? She took that brave step. Hola, papi. Hola, mija. ¿Cómo estás? Bien, ¿y tú? Bien. Right off the bat, I asked my dad how he feels about our long-distance relationship. ¿Cómo te sientes de, de nuestra relación que es digital o es de distancia? ¿Cómo te sientes de eso? Yo estoy acostumbrado a, a que los hijos no se salen de la casa hasta que se casan. Lo que yo deseo es que ustedes vivan con nosotros hasta que se casen o decidan hacer su vida. Vivamos en la misma casa. Eso a mí, para mí es, es usual. And for the first few minutes, he talked about how different American culture was for children and their families. Lo que yo quería era, creo yo que es porque yo así estoy acostumbrado, que hubiéramos vivido juntos y ahora, pues, que estoy acá, pues, menos, porque, pues, no hay posibilidad. He would have liked for us all to live together until we got married. But no matter what he would have liked, he said now, there is no possibility for us to live together. Our way of life, through screens, minimal visits, and missing out on important life events, are all that we have available to us. These are our only options because of his deportation. I know this. He knows this. But still, it hurt. I was struggling to get my questions across, so I took a step back and started from the basics. No sé, okay, maybe I should frame this better. Teníamos una vida juntos antes. And I couldn't keep talking. I got choked up. But he sat with me in the silence. Sí, teníamos una vida diferente. He said he didn't imagine us being separated either, but that the distance hasn't changed his love for us. What it has done is made it clear that he's missing out and will never get that time back. And that it has also made our growing up and getting older hard to ignore, especially for both him and my mom. A mí en lo personal no me ha minimizado lo que siento por ustedes. El, la distancia no ha sido factor para mí de que no sienta este por ustedes lo que lo que sentiría estando estando junto con ustedes creo que mi manera de sentir las cosas hacia ustedes es es la misma 
simplemente que es un tiempo que que muy valioso que estoy que se está perdiendo y que no se va a recuperar porque el tiempo pasa y no vuelve cada día ya como a mi edad cada vez que nos vemos yo yo noto que ya hay diferencia en el físico de uno tanto de ustedes como mío y tu mamá también que es más notorio todavía el cambio porque como que el tiempo para nosotros está pasando más rápido que que con ustedes and i can remember vividly over the past years when we've said to each other hey did you notice that my dad's hands and jaw tremble now or my dad made observations about us like our height or our hair and it was like we were seeing each other for the first time every time we visited we were all changing and it felt really fast i then asked him if he had emotionally processed the deportation la deportación La he procesado, he aceptado la realidad. He said he accepted his reality on the first day, but 11 years later he's still not used to being apart, nor living in Tecate, which is where he lives now. He doesn't go out, and if he did, he would go alone, so he sees that there's no point in doing that. Um, and he doesn't want to spend money he doesn't have or get caught up in anything that will later impact us negatively. Before hanging up, I wanted to know how he imagined his future. No, mija, pues yo, yo mi futuro no, no, lo veo muy oscuro. No, no, yo no veo futuro en, 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 en mi vida. Está... No, mija, my future, no. I see it very dark. I don't see a future in my life. It is whatever God decides because I don't see a future. I am disabled. I can't work. I can't produce what I consume. I am aware that I shouldn't be a burden for you all, but I'm preventing you all from saving your money for retirement or with my situation, it's a great inconvenience that is negatively impacting you all afectándolos a ustedes negativamente. I had accepted for many years that my dad wouldn't see my high school, college, or master's graduation. That he wouldn't be there for my grandma's passing away or see me off at the airport when I moved for a new job. I hadn't thought about what our future looks like and even less really centered myself in all of this. You know, what I feel and what I yearn for. So I tried. I thought for weeks about what I want and what I need and what I still hope for my future to look like with my dad in it. And here's what I see. I see us going back to East L.A., opening the door to our home, and everybody's just there. I see both of my parents sitting in the front yard under the shade of our tree, and they're relaxed. They don't have any tension in their shoulders. 
I see us doing everyday things like going to the grocery store, dragging him to a yoga class for the first time, going to a Dodgers game, and pulling over to eat at the taco trucks on Whittier before we get home, and having Friday night dinners, uh, eating mariscos at Las Playas because that's his thing. I imagine my dad getting frustrated with my mom because she hoards everything and him meeting all of my friends in person. And if there's a guy whose name he doesn't recognize, he pauses and he's like, ¿Y quién es ese? And gets all protective. Um, I imagine him scolding me for staying out too late or not taking a jacket when it's night out because it's cold. I see us taking family trips to the Bay and seeing where I went to college and the worlds that I'm a part of and the people who've shaped it. I see me having property in Mexico and traveling as a family with my kids every summer because that was my childhood. He loves boxing and a life goal of mine is to be able to get tickets for him to go see one of those huge boxing events in Vegas uh, and get him seats in the front row or however close I could afford. But I also think part of the dream is just to be together doing nothing, breathing a little easier because we're together and that is a privilege. I imagine laughing and honestly just not living in fear. I realize what I imagine is us basically living back together in LA and that's ideal, right? But no matter what happens, we'll need to spend more time together, uh, definitely bridge our lives more intentionally. And I'll need to remind myself that this situation is hard. It's shitty, but us laughing, us having joy, and us sharing love is going to be my way of taking my own power back. You know, we've been thinking and talking a lot about how we really won't be returning to the normal we knew before this pandemic. And so many of us are creating a world that prioritizes quality time with loved ones and values all the essential workers out there. For this week, I want you to also close your eyes and imagine what kind of world you want for yourself and how you can go about doing that and how you can shape it. Email us at truthbetold at kqed.org or leave a voicemail at 415-553-2802. That's 415-553-2802. So we can include it on our next episode and share it with the rest of the Truth Be Told family. On our next episode, the relationships we have with our mothers are complex. But how do you balance loving your mom with a relationship that's so toxic you feel like cutting her out of your life? I want to know how I can honor the respect and love that I have for my mother while also acknowledging that the relationship isn't healthy for me. That's next time on Truth Be Told. Truth Be Told is produced by Susie Racho, 
Issa Mendoza, Katie McMurrin, and Rob Spate. KQED's leadership team includes Erica Aguilar, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. A big thanks to Kiana Mogadam and the good people at NPR West. Truth Be Told is a production of KQED in San Francisco. I'm Tanya Mosley.